Um, I'm honored to do this today, a job for which I feel very unqualified. And um, I've, I'm done, I've done everything I could to try to stretch this out so I don't make Corey look too bad. For <laughs> but uh, I was asked for whatever reason, and I guess this is where God has put me today. I consider myself a young Christian, having not paid much attention to God for the first 40 years or so of my life. So I feel I'm kind of short of this, this kind of experience here, so I hope you'll bear with me. I suspect that the main reason why, why I'm standing here has more to do with my second grade teacher than with any qualifications of knowledge or wisdom that I might have. Mrs. Roberts said we could either give our reports orally in front of the class, or you could write it out longhand and hand it in. And standing in front of the class was way easier for me because my penmanship is terrible, my spelling was and still is horrible. So writing it out was not what I really wanted to do. So today we're talking about the final two verses of Jude. And uh, <laughs> this is funny. You know what I forgot to bring with me today? My Bible. <laughs> but but Wyoming's going to have it on the screen, so I'll just read it off the prompter for you. I, I decided that, you know, this, this is such a short two verses. It's barely 50 words in the English Standard Version. But those 50 words have a lot to say. And I hadn't really thought about reading it out loud until we had way too early Bible study this week, and we read it, the whole book there, and I realized, you know, this only takes five minutes. This will help me not make Corey look so bad again. So, <clears throat> so what, that's, that's what I'm going to do here. There's, it starts with a warm greeting, and then there's an indictment, a judgment, and a warning against false teachers. But listen for when that ends and when the mood changes to from all the ways we can go wrong to do this and be encouraged and have hope. And then it's capped off with the two verses we're going to talk about today, and the commentators all have things to say like Jude's grand, soul-stirring, exalted, and beautiful ending to his book. So if we could have Jude on the screen so I can read it now since I didn't bring my Bible. <laughs> Jude, a servant of Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serving as the example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your your love feasts, and they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all who convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And now we come today to today's scripture. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So did you notice the the change in tone there in verse 17 through 19? Jude reminds the church that the apostles said there would be scoffers and division. And verse 20 through 40, he tells everyone to, number one, build up your faith. In other words, don't doubt the Lord. And number two, pray in the Holy Spirit. And three, to stay in the love of God, having mercy on those who doubt, who don't pray and who don't know how to rest themselves in God's love. We're to help save these doubters as we are able. And then we get to today's scripture, the doxology. That word dox literally means truth, followed by ology, which is the study of, means the study of. The plain truth of God. The next slide, please. Only as you read through this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before. As I read through this, the plain truth of God wasn't really quite so simple and plain as it first appeared. Next. To him who is able, the presence of his, who exactly is he referring to here? And as I read through the commentaries, there was some two different ways of looking at it here. And if you, uh, I took him to be Jesus keeping us from stumbling and presenting us before the presence of his Father's glory. But in context of the next verse, to the only God, it seems like to him must be referring to the only God, the Father. So which one is it? I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but let's move on from the who to the what for just a minute, to the is able to keep you from stumbling. Exactly what does that phrase refer to? In some versions, some translations of the Bible, they have, instead of is able to keep you from stumbling, it says is able to, let me see, I have it here someplace. I tried to do this out of order from my notes and I can't. Um, to Cam should know it it's in his Bible we talked about it it's able to, to now to him who is able to help you stand something like that is that what it says so are we keeping us from stumbling into the ways of sin and ungodliness which we talked about earlier in the book or is he talking about keeping us from stumbling when we are presented in the presence of God. I'm going to go back to my notes now so we can get on with this. In context of Jude's earlier verses and all the warnings of ungodliness, following Jesus, by following Jesus on the narrow way, he can keep or guard us from stumbling into sin. Or if we think about in the presence of God's glory throughout the Bible we see people falling before God and angels keep you from stumbling is how it's printed in the other version that I saw which fits the second interpretation you remember Moses could barely stand could barely look at God's shadow as God passed by him on Mount Sinai and everyone falls down in God's presence or in the presence of his angel but here Jude says not only will we be able to stand but welcome to stand without blame and with great joy we will be presented before the Lord either one of those interpretations stumbling on the path and the rest of Jews letter or falling down in awe before the presence both seem plausible and both are filled with hope and encouragement but which way are we supposed to take it just a little confusion there but the confusion continues to the only God, our Savior. We're constantly referred to Jesus as our one route to salvation, but here Jude is saying the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now back in verse 24, we just saw him, he was kind of conflating Jesus and the Father together as one. But here he's talking about him as two definitely separate entities. Which are we supposed to do? Does this seem kind of like having it both ways at the same time? Maybe it's just a tad confusing to anybody, others besides me? 
I assure you it sounds that way to our less church friends and acquaintances. This is something that Christians have struggled with almost from the beginning of Christianity. But Jude here in his book, writing just a few decades after his biological brother went up to, a Calv went up to Calvary on a cross, Jude has absolutely no problem interchanging Jesus Christ with God the Father and at the same time considering them separate entities. Jude is absolutely convinced that his brother Jesus is the embodiment of God, God in the flesh on earth. There are branches of Christianity today who do not accept that God put himself fully in a form capable of walking among us on earth only to suffer and die on a cross for our sins. And on the surface, when you think about it, that really doesn't appear to be a very logical thing for God to do. Next slide. However, if we're going to pretend for just a moment that we are actually logical, consider this. Logically, how can we believe in God the all-knowing the all-powerful, the God without limits, and believe that God is limited and does not have the ability to walk among us as a man from Nazareth named Jesus. It can't be logically both ways. God either is all-powerful and all-loving or not. And if he's not, he's not God. But it's a hard thing for human minds to wrap themselves around. It's hard to understand. It's hard to communicate that to people. It's a mind-bender. And I've seen people who just can't bring themselves to think about it, a reality where that kind of thing could happen. They say things like my father always said, that that's too far-fetched, he would say. Or in other words, too godlike. Well, we're talking about God! <laughs> I struggle to understand the Trinity myself, but about 20 years ago, when I was still taking my first steps of my Christian walk, I read The Shack. And it's a no little novel that contains the most understandable explanation of the Trinity that I've come across. I'll warn you, if you haven't read it, it's a real tearjerker. But I thank God and my brother-in-law, Chuck, for putting it in my path. But the Trinity is still a bit bewildering to me. Challenging, a bit murky, maybe sometimes confusing, but this passage is so radiant with hope and promise and consolation and encouragement. The light just pours out of these verses to me. And so here's how it makes sense to Ben. If the words of the Bible are divinely inspired words of God as understood and recorded by the flawed human beings who recorded them on God's behalf, we shouldn't be surprised that concepts that are normal and mundane to the all-knowing God's mind are just too much for us to understand. To the point that the words we would try to put those concepts into are just not enough to explain everything of God. It would be like one of us trying to explain text messaging or TikTok to Benjamin Franklin. Can you imagine that? How would you, how would you even begin to put that into words for somebody of a different era to understand? One of the commentaries that Corey gave me referred to Jude as the lightning, the eye-burning, intense flashes of light that shines out amongst the books that surround it in the Bible. What we see here, I think, is someone who is on fire with the Holy Spirit. And I think this doxology in the whole letter, in fact, 
In fact, we really get a glimpse of what maybe it's like to be so close to the presence of God. Man, it's like every light in the house is on and burning brighter than ever, and to Jude, it's all perfectly clear for a moment or two, but it's a lot of meaning and a lot of weighty words all at once, like we saw in Revelation. In this passage, him and his, who's he talking about here? Is God referring to, is Jesus, Jude referring to God or Jesus? I think it's both, and either one, all at the same time. I think it's a bit sad if we spend our time on questions like this, when the real importance is being aware of not stumbling. And without God's intercession, we would all stumble into sin all the time. He's able to keep you, and able to keep you from stumbling. Somebody pointed out this week, it says able. doesn't say he will. Sometimes we will stumble. Sometimes there's things we need to learn by stumbling. But God is able to keep you from stumbling. Is he talking about stumbling before the throne of God or stumbling in, into sin? You know, our minds are pretty used to processing things in order one at a time, and we certainly don't expect two messages to com be communicated at once with the same few words. But why not? Who are we to say that God cannot do such a thing? Although we were made in, our, in his image, do we really expect the mind of God to be as limited as our minds are? Do you think God sometimes forgets where he parked? Or why he just walked into the kitchen? Does he leave the grocery list on the kitchen counter only remember it when he gets to the grocery store? I don't think so. The God with no limits that I believe in can certainly tell us multiple things at once, but we in our limited capacities, in our limited human bodies, may not be able to understand his meaning or all that he's saying. What I see here is God doing things for us, guarding us from stumbling and presenting us blameless, without blemish, and with great joy. And through these actions and others, to the only God, our Savior, God saves us, unworthy though we may think we are. And don't think that way. We shouldn't think that way. Don't think that you're unworthy of his saving grace. I struggle with this. But I heard it said last Thursday, and that's why I decided I'd throw it in here, that we should not hold on to a past sin that God has forgiven. If God forgive can forgive, and he does, we should also. Who are we to say that God is making a mistake by forgiving something, someone? And that's what we're doing if we forgive, if we refuse, even to the point of forgiving ourselves. So that's a little off the subject, but back to Jude here. <clears throat> Jude was saying that the only God, our Savior, guards us and presents us blameless with great joy. And he does this through the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And because God has done and is able to do this, to the only God, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. The commentary in my Bible mentioned that these four words could be translated as to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be credit, or glory, beauty, or majesty, jurisdiction, or dominion, and power. 
Credit, glory. You make, you make the winning shot at the buzzer and you get all the credit. You get all the glory. The majesty of the Lord is on display in the beauty around us every day. And that beauty is all his. It's his creation. And he has jurisdiction or dominion over it. And he has the authority, the power to create that beauty or take it away. And Jude closes with this magnificent and challenging mind bender. One more, please. Before all time and now and forever, existing across time, knowing your lives, each and every one of you, knowing all about it, every hair of your head, thousands of years before you were even born. And if we go back to verse 5 in Jude's letter, did you notice this? I want to remind you now, although you fully once knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, how did Jesus do that 1,400 years before he was born? How is that possible? Is that one of those things that you just dismiss as kind of a God thing and go on, skip over it, kind of gloss over that part of the Bible? Or is it something you kind of skim over, refuse to think about? For me personally, existing across time, Jesus doing things before he was born, God knowing the future was not a hard idea to accept. And here's why. Hands up if you know what that is. Anybody know what that is? There's a few fans here. If you said it's a British telephone box in space, you're only a little bit close. This is the iconic time machine from a British television science fiction show about a time-traveling adventurer that first aired in the 1960s. And believe it or not, it's still in production today. It's an, ama it's an amazing, amazing franchise that they were able to keep it alive and relevant and vibrant for so long. But it's call box sized on the outside, but it's bigger than a football stadium on the inside. Kind of like Jesus. Looks like a man, but so much more. The episodes were rebroadcast on public television for years, and they take place in the past or the future, sometimes in space, but mostly here on Earth, Earth before time, Earth in Old Testament times, Earth in New Testament times, and in modern times and in the future. The main character is human-looking, but from another planet. So earthly, but not of this Earth. Sound familiar? Like someone else we've been talking about before? And there's more. There's at least one episode where the main character explains why he keeps showing up on Earth. It's because he believes that humanity, we, are worth saving and protecting because of our potential to do good. The main character on this show has died like 14 or 16 times so far and replaced by a regenerated self. That's how they changed actors. When the, somebody left the show, they killed him off and regenerated him as a new, a new same character, a new body. Kind of like being uh, resurrected and brought back in a different body, in a resurrected body. So these are all of the different actors that have played, that have played the, main, the lead role on this. There's a couple of them up there. 
it's kind of hard to pick out in that picture, but a couple of them are in black and white. Those episodes were that old. <clears throat> it's all pretty far out there stuff, and a lot of people turn away from it because it's just too far-fetched, too much pretend science. But watching several episodes, especially the more recent ones, you get used to the idea that time is not a rigid barrier to thought or highly advanced minds and technology. This show prepared me to accept the idea that knowledge and thought could extend across time and space, that Jesus, the man, could be from the beginning of time and now and forever. And you know what these people who were the show's main characters, the human-looking aliens from another planet, you know what they're called? Time Lords. So, a very secular television show on what I consider to be, an, at the best, very secular television network, could not avoid bringing the word Lord to broad public attention multiple times in every episode. I believe that our Lord and Savior used this secular television show to prepare my mind to accept the concept of his truly eternal existence and of him with a mind far beyond our own appearing to us in human form, walking among us, experiencing death, being crucified and resurrected, and he's still doing it. It's still on the air. Still quietly through unexpected pathways, the Lord is here with us, actively preparing minds to receive his love. How amazing is that? Don't you find hope in that? I certainly do. People don't even know what's going on. And here it is. He's amazing, that God. And think of this. The words of these verses in Jude were meant to console and reassure Christians in about 60 AD. And what I've been talking to you about is that the same words today, in a way completely unthinkable, to Christians in A.D. 60 are still a reinsurance and a consolation and a hope for Christians, all of us today. When I see this and realize what I think God is doing through a very secular channel, that's amazing. The Lord our God, not the time Lord of science fiction, but the actual Lord who exists in all time, is with us daily, actively working in our midst in ways we can't imagine. And I've showed you one of those ways, to prepare all of us to receive his love and salvation. So friends, keep your eye on the Lord in all that you do, and keep the shield of faith before you, and he will keep you from stumbling, and with great joy, and by his grace, we will actually stand before him one day.